They put everything they had on the line to get me where I am. I have no right to turn my back on my ancestors right now. I want America, and I'm going to take it. And the only way to do it is to understand how the game is played. And I, yes. so far, I played the game pretty good. So, culture, my culture is African. Non-negotiable. Unapologetic. Unashamed. I am culturally an African. My nationality is an American African. My citizenship is American. Because that's how I get paid. We have to understand the dynamics of what we're dealing with. We have to understand the language that we're speaking, the etymology. And what I want to tell all those lawyers, all those African-American genius men and women who are studying law, while you're studying the European law, study Moorish law. Study Moorish law. Understand the law that the Moors gave to America. Because, you know, Europeans didn't invent nothing. They, oh, well, no, I can't say that. They did invent. Uh, they invented uh, the Xerox. Not the they stole stuff from us, right? We're not talking about all the stuff they stole. <laughs> no, no. They, well, they, they, they invented the Xerox machine and the patent office. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. We'll get that to Cause them. Because they, they stole our ideas. They didn't invent nothing. They stole our ideas and put their name on it. You know, one of the interesting things um, is um, the idea of classical music. You know, uh, such a beautiful music. I really enjoy classical music. Beethoven, another brother, is, is probably somebody that I have more on, on my iPod. I have music. I have a whole collection of, of classical music and I went to a school one time that was built by a woman of European descent who taught classical music in the public school system. They wrote, in fact, they, they did a, a movie about her. I think Meryl Streep played her part in the movie where here in Harlem, uh, she brought classical music, violin playing and things like that to young African and Hispanic American children. And there's a scene, I think, in the movie um, where she says, and this, and I also visited her school. Uh, she invited me to come to her school to do a presentation to the children on uh, the role that Africans played in the development of classical music. And I remember she told me that one of the unfortunate things is that, um, that there were parents that came and said, I don't want my children... To, to study white people music because in their minds they see classical music as white people music they don't understand it was Africans brought the piano into Europe that's right that's right they turned the harp sideways encased it in wood the piano is the only instrument that is both quarterphone and percussion And what they did is they combined the xylophone, which is African, with the harp, with the kalimba, 
which is the finger piano. Africans brought that into Europe. By 1600, Europeans began to sit at the feet of these master teachers, and they started what is called, before classical music came into existence, the music was called Baroque. Bach was one of the ones that really started looking at this. Baroque, B-A-R-O-Q-U-E. See, fam, this is why when we study our history, we'll shut the room down. Folk don't invite me places. Not, and the reason why they don't invite me places is because I don't get emotional. I get scientific. I'll show you what I'm talking about. And I'm not going to get emotional. They try to get me emotional. Because when they can get us emotional, that's when they knock us off our game. You stay scientific, they will keep tripping over what they're saying. And we brought that into Europe. We, brought, we created the first music conservatory in Spain. We did that. Yes. We built libraries in Europe. They had no libraries in Europe. We brought libraries in Europe. We brought universities. Every major university in Europe was started by black people including Cambridge and Oxford. Yes, sir. But we don't know this because we don't know our history. So I, I, I want to go back to your question, brother, because I think it's very important because I understand the idea of sovereignty. My yes. culture is African. I am an African. My nationality is American-African, just like a brother or sister from Puerto Rico, would be a Puerto Rican African, a Jamaican, a Jamaican African. African is our last name that joins us all together, but the first name is the geographic location where we come from. I use the term American African. I don't necessarily, sometimes I say it, but I try not to say African American. I say American African. That's my choice. That's just how I do it. But my citizenship, if I'm going to claim America, your citizenship as the etymological word must be American. Because that's how this system works. I understand how we feel. I understand all the things that we try to do, my brother Kenya. I understand that, really. But right now, I am in, oh, okay. I am in uh, creator mode right now. I am in a mode right now where I see the urgency of the moment. And the urgency of the moment says, as we were on the plantation, our ancestors did things and said things on the plantation. <clears throat> the yes. Euro European will come up to the enslaved African and say, you happy, Tom? Tom said, yeah, the boss. I was a happy as happy can be. I was a happy Negro. Master, but that night, Tom was on the Underground Railroad. So Tom knew how to answer that European. And I understand you can be defiant if you want to. I understand that. And there's some people very defiant. But you better believe all eyes are going to be on you, so you ain't getting on the Underground Railroad that night. So some of our ancestors did what they had to do in order to get where they wanted to go. 
This European is not very intelligent. It doesn't take much to fool them. In fact, the fact that we're still here proves that. They're not very bright. I've been around enough of them. I've learned more from a brother nodding out on 169th Street and 3rd Avenue than I have with Europeans that have two PhDs. So once again, I'm going to answer your question, and I'm going to put it in this sense. My culture is African. My culture is African. My nationality is American-African. My citizenship is American because I'm taking America. And everything that America has, because remember, the first people here were African. And for thousands of years, only Africans lived in America. And then came four other migrations, some African and some Asian, that we now look at indigenous people You know, I have family Choctaw also from Alabama. I have family uh, that's Cherokee. And by the way, I don't like how they're acting. So until they get right with the great spirit, don't tell me that the president of the Cherokee Nation is a white man. I don't want to hear that, okay? Yeah, I don't want to hear that either. You can take that somewhere else. And, And the way in which some indigenous people have been treating black folk, I don't care for you too much. And you're as bad as the white man as far as I'm concerned. So please don't play with me like that uh, because don't think as you Native American that I automatically will embrace you because I look for people's spirit. I don't care about what you are. I care about what you be. Yes, yes. The first people in in this part of the world were black, man, and they were here for thousands of years. They were known as the Twa people, the Mbuti people, the people we derogatorily call pygmy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Folk come back I see you, here. Brother, I'm... Okay. I'm done. I oh, answered no. your question. <laughs> Appreciate you, brother. Because I really Appreciate want you. to engage with the community also. Yes, yes. Brother Kwame, I see you. Sister Ayodeli, I see you. Brother Kwame, your phone line is open. Your phone line is open, my brother. Brother Kwame, you still with us? I'm going to come back to you. I saw you. I saw you in queue for a question or comment. I'll come back to you, my beloved brother. We are here. We are here. Your phone line to remain open. Sister Ayodele, I'm coming to you right now. You are live. If you have a question or comment, please press star 6-1 at this time, star 6-1, question or comment. Sister Ayodele, your line is open. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you so much for all of your wisdom and education, Baba. Um, and it's almost as if the ancestors and the guardian spirits have sent you on this evening to verify everything that uh, we are doing as being a people who call ourselves the Republic of New Africa. It is a verification because what everything that you spoke of, what we are supposed to do, there's been a plan. It's been based on 53 years of persecution from this government, and we're standing on the shoulders of Garvey, Mario Bedelli, John mm. Henri Clark, everything, when we talk mm. about nationalism, okay. pan-Africanism, because this is an African world issue. And uh, what you spoke about is in the divine time. So I know that 
you're just one of the travelers who we are meeting along the way for redemption. Because I, okay. I believe Baba said everything that we are, everything that we do, must be put to the service of the race. Mm-hmm. Or throw it in the trash can of history. Okay. So we're on this, this, we're on this beautiful journey, and I, I'm just so grateful for your words and to know that we have the science, just like you spoke of that science, understanding that we are um, African people, that we have the right, after you have enslaved us, to either claim our land, and that's, of course, with the indigenous because we're working in unity, and build what we want. That's what we're talking about, building, turning ourselves from a Eurocentric to an African-centric paradigm. So I'm just so happy. I'm just so honored. Thank you. Uh, because we are about freedom, we are about the red, black, and green, we are about redemption, we are all about divine marriage, and I encourage people to look us and to do the, the work study and the training that Baba is talking about, all the docs, everything in this society should be turned for us to build, to practice our culture, and that means we're, we're claiming the five states in the South. And it's based on science because we are going to look at matriarchy. We're looking at scientific socialism, unification, everything, Baba. Oh, I'm so, I'm so happy to have heard you tonight because just reinforce what we're talking about and we're doing. I thank you so much. It's an honor, sir. Hotep, my sister, I appreciate your appreciation and I appreciate your words also because that's exactly what we're about, my sister. And, you know, now that you mentioned that concept, um, I'd like to also, because I always try to Africanize everything so that we can come from a root word. I just found out the other day by my brother, Baba Heru. He's a master jeweler and scholar. And he was speaking about the word Pan-African, which I've used. In fact, up until a couple of days ago, that's the word I always use. But when I heard the brother break down this word, and then yesterday I had a chance to visit his studio, the studio of Patah, and he was breaking down the word that he said we should use instead of Pan-African. It means the same thing, but it comes from an African root. And he said that the, uh, the word Pan-Africa, Pan, Pan means uh, all in the Roman or the Latin language, of course, Latin don't have language, but that's a whole other story. But the idea that he offered us is to use the word nebu afraka, N-E-B-U, N-E-B-U in meduneta, or what the Greeks called hieroglyphs, means all. But it means a cosmic all. It's far more inclusive than just what we think of when we say all. Nebu, N-E-B-U. And he said we should use the word Af-ra-ka. Nebu Afraka. Af means flesh of the creator. Ra means the light, heat, and creative power of the creator. And ka means the spirit of the creator. So what you have is the living flesh of the energy of the spirit of the creator. All flesh. 
You know when you see all flesh shall see it together? This is what this is. Nebu Afraka. Nebu, N-E-B-U, means all. Af means flesh of the creator. Ra means the energy of the creator. And Ka means the spirit of the creator. And so I found it very interesting, and I, I posted back to him, and we talked about it yesterday. I was telling him, brother, that's the word I'm going to use from now on. I'm not going to use Pan-African. I'm going to have to explain it to our people because they don't know Nebu Afrika. I'll explain so it. Fun. But from now on, when I mean to say Pan-African, I'm going to say Nebu Afrika. Again, that's a common mm-hmm. thought. I want to share it with the community. If it vibes with you, if you're on that frequency, it's all good. If by chance you're not, I respect and understand that too, as long as we know what we're talking about. And what I'm talking about is all black folk working together in the interest of our peoples, emancipation and liberation. Bless us. Very So profound. thank you, my sister, because sister speaking that led me to make this concept uh, presentable to the community. Nebu Afrika. Be you from the Caribbean, Central South America, Holland, UK, Chicago, Japan. If you black and you bring it all together, then we are all Nebu Afrika. Love it, love it, love it. Nebu Africa. Yeah, love it. A-F-R-A-K-A. Brother Kwame, you are up next, my beloved brother. How are you? Greetings, Brother Kenya and Shemotep to my brother Kaba. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Hotep to you, my brother. I appreciate you. Yes. And I, I'm I'm really enjoying this and and the Jegna teaching as as you know as being a master Jegna. And and what I'm you began the show with imagination, and you know you were talking about etymology and the etymology of imagination and when you break it down is to oneself, and oneself you gave an excellent presentation on the seventeen grandparents because. <laughs> the image of oneself and the nation. So one is a nation when you count that 1,046,000 ancestors that follow us, each one. So we, we are a nation within ourselves when we overstand our spiritual. This is why I conceived the, the Overground Railroad. Yes, Harriet did the underground, but we are going back to the cosmic. We're over us is the Milky Way, and we have to reconnect to our, our our galactic self, which is part of the cosmic self. And what I'm doing is is creating and looking to do Oasis because you were saying about the, the energies in the cities and dealing with the energy of the 5G, but we have to come back into nature. And the Oasis is a space in which in a desert, you know, it has a life force, but I made it an acronym, our ancestor spirit in service, because our ancestors are in nature, and we have to reconnect them to help us on this journey towards our, our liberation and freeing ourselves. And so I'm commending you, you know, on what you're teaching. And, and Nick Cannon has a thing on Howard that he interviewed Nick Carrick 
Nick, I mean, uh, the one Hidden Colors, Tariq. And the name of it, and he, he, he shared it with us. He said it was supposed to be named Secret Niggas, Niggas Secret. And then he said, no, I can't put it out there like that. So he came up with Hidden Colors, but that was what he disclosed, what the name of it was when he first thought of it. And so what I'm looking – what I want to ask, though, you're doing the thing on William Leo Hansberry. And he did a, a maybe a three- or four-point series in Ebony. And I remember when I was in Chicago, I got some copies of it. But is that added in your book that you're doing on Hansberry about the, the Nubian warriors? Yes. In fact, I, I cite that. Dr. John Henry Clark gave me the six-part series. Right. Um, and that, that he had. He, right, but he sent us, Obadelli sent me to Chicago because he had a brother friend that, that went up there, and it, Dr. Clark had told us, he says, go up there and, and get the copies and have them to copy it. And, and he, like you said, the, the Xerox machine and made the, the, the six-part series and brought it out. And that's what I was trying to see was that because I have it, in, in in the form that we got it from in copies, but I wanted to see it in a book form. So it does have that, that whole sock about uh, Harka and, and uh, the yes. Nubian warriors. Yes. Yes. Okay. And, yeah, you, yeah. and my last question is, could you speak on dark matter on Dr. Moore? Because you talked about our, our aberrant child and how his brain – began in the cold to shrink in the pioneer guy and classify in the way that way of us overstanding who we are dealing with because of what and the way he lived in his environment. And I thank you, Hotep. No doubt. My brother Kwame, please, can you just repeat the question that you're asking me? Okay. The question is on Dr. Moore's book, Dark Matter. And oh, yes. Okay. Dr. This. Moore. Right. Yeah, you're and talking Dr. about T.K. Moore. Moore. When, Right. And what he talked what you talked about was the part of, of what happens to the brain and, and the, the glands and yeah. which happens when you when you live in a cold environment. They contract yeah. and shrink up. And and this is what, like you said, over the thousands of years he lost his melanin, his pineal shrank. But what happened is is that in him in him living in that environment, he his mind, his mind shrank also with living yes. in that environment because cold does that to the human body. Yes, yes. Okay, I got your question. Excellent. Okay. Thank okay. you for that question, Brother Kwame, because that becomes very important. Um, there is research I've done. There's a brother that comes out of um, uh, East Africa. His name is Otieno Wadiaro, and he has shared information. There's some family, let me tell you, there are African people around the world including the African continent, where people are doing very serious research on this. That's why I'm excited about science. This is not emotional. What I'm about to tell you is not emotional. It's straight-up science. It's what happens to the body under certain conditions that it's put under. And for those that live in a climate, maybe not southern Florida and southern California in the United States, but for those that live where we get winter, you know how things change for us. You know how we just change the whole way we live in. We spend more time indoors. We put more clothes on when it's winter. That's just the way it is. We, the brown to black people, 
our pigment changes in the wintertime. Just like right now, it's going to get darker. That's just natural. That's what science does. Not only that, but your hair changes also. You see, Europeans have kinky hair too, but they don't call it kinky because they have to separate themselves from black people. So they don't say it's kinky. They say it's frizzy. And they got all sorts of products. Frizz ease. Okay? There's a whole bunch of European folk won't admit it to you, but they straighten their hair just like black people do. But they won't admit it. The question that brother asks is, again, going back to science. Your skin and your brain, in a very unique way, are the same. In fact, some people, in fact, T.K. Moore in his book talks about the fact that the skin is a second brain and the brain is a second skin. And here's why. In our bodies, organs do work. They're workers. They do work. Glands secrete liquids. That's what they do. Glands do not do work, and organs do not secrete liquids. However, the brain does work, and the brain secretes liquids. The skin does work, and the skin secretes liquids. So the brain and the skin are two relatable entities in our body that do the same thing, but in different ways. Okay. When Africans found themselves in the northern climate and the weather came down on them, When temp and okay, here's another thing. <clears throat> There's a gentleman by the name of O eight Owens. O H N N E S. He lived last century. And part of this century, I think. He did research on what happens to organic life once the temperature goes below four hundred degrees. Uh below zero. And what he found is that the skin and the brain can no longer function the way it should. There is malformation of the process of organic growth when the body freezes. Let me say in this sense, That when you get to that point, I'm, I'm honking because these folk out here got signs about Black Lives Matter and police brutality. I said, that's what you're listening to. I'm honking my horn. Um, think of it like this. In your limbic system in the brain, you have three very important glands that secrete liquids. You have your pituitary gland your pineal gland, and your optic thalami gland. Your pituitary gland is responsible in secretion of liquids for your physical growth. Your pineal gland is responsible for your spiritual growth. Your optic thalami is responsible 
for your emotional growth. The pineal gland, being that gland that secretes melatonin and serotonin for your spiritual growth, when it is exposed to those extreme cold climates, something happens to your pineal gland. It's shaped like a pine, like, like a grape. Like a grape. Think of a grape. It's plump. It's got liquid in it. It's squeezable. But when you put the grape in the sun, it dries up. It shrivels up because the liquid is drawn out of it. And in so doing, it becomes a raisin. Okay. Now let's go to the pineal gland. Pineal gland is a healthy gland. It's, um, it's plump. It looks like a, 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 a miniature-sized uh, grape, shaped like a grape, like a, pine, like a pine cone. But think of that pineal gland exposed to the absolute cold. What the sun did to the grape is what the ice did to your pineal gland. It calcified it. It hardened it. There is evidence. People have gone into people's brains to see the pine pine cone. What they found is that upwards of 70 to 80% of Eurasians have a calcified pineal gland. They have also found that upwards of about 10% of black folk have a calcified pineal gland. So let's get scientific and not speak like it's all or nothing. Having a calcified pineal gland can happen even if you're not in the ice. But if you're exposed in the ice, there is a very good chance that your pineal gland is going to calcify when you're under 400 degrees. And that's what the Dr. Owens found out, what happens to the skin when it gets frostbitten is the same thing that happens to your spiritual growth in your brain. So the people we're dealing with, when you look at them, look at their faces, when you look at the people that hunted down Brother Aubrey, when you look at the face of the man that had his, his knee on our Brother uh, Floyd's neck, look at their face, and what you're going to see is pure evil. Inhumanity. That is a virus. And that's what we've been living under. And let me tell you something about these so-called liberals. Congressman Adam Clayton Powell, the great congressman from Harlem, once said one of the dirtiest words in the English language is liberal. So it's important that we understand that when we're dealing with these Democrats, see, for me, Congress ain't nothing but one big gang war between the Democrats and the Repub blood can. They are a gang. None of them, Malcolm taught us, Democrats are sly foxes and Republicans are brute wolves. But don't ever forget, they both belong to the dog family. I have never forgotten that. 
I don't vote because they like me. Even some black politicians don't like black people. I don't vote for you because I like you. I don't even vote for you for all the things that our ancestors went through to get the vote. I vote because it's a strategy. I vote because I'm at war. And when I'm at war, every weapon counts. Let me ask you this. You're going out to war, and on your table, you have a gun, a knife, and a pen. What you going to do? Some people say, well, I get the gun, because in their mind, that's a very powerful weapon. I say, yeah, that's true. It is. Well, what happens when you run out of bullets? And they say, well, I'll pick up the knife, too. I say, okay, that's good, too. What happens when you run out of bullets, and, and by chance, you might drop the knife? The point I'm making is that when I'm going out to war, I pick up everything on the table because I never know what I may need. Because even a pen, which is a tool, can become a weapon at war. I don't leave anything off the table by any means necessary. The ballot or the bullet, I'm going to take it off. I believe in gun control. Control your gun. I hope I answered your question, Brother Kwame. If not, you can come back and try to refine it so I can get deeper into what you're asking. I hope I answered your question. I'm going to uh, open up his line real quick. And Brother Kwame, did he uh, answer your question? All right. Uh, he might have stepped away for a moment. Um, uh, Mama AZ. Yes. We hear you, brother. Yeah, I just said most eloquently he did because that's the part we're needing to understand and knowing our enemy. Oh, yes. Okay, good. That's what we're dealing with. We are dealing with a spiritless human being with a calcified pineal gland that cannot secrete the proper hormones to balance their sanity. We are dealing with a ruthless, moralist, evil human being. Now, I'm not saying all. And I think it's important that we all say that we're not talking about all of them. I hate to have to add that caveat to what I say, but I have to do it so that we can stay scientific like that. But my thing is, a lot of them... See, what I think they're doing right now is the right thing. White folk need to talk to white folk. See, black folk don't have a problem. White folk have a problem. Black folk problem is the fact that white folk have a problem. And what, what they suffer from, the greatest enemy of the human family, talking science right now, the greatest enemy of the human family is ignorance. Ignorance gives birth to twins. Fear and denial, denial of that fear. Fear is, F-E-A-R, false evidence appearing real. Because most white folk, most Eurasians live in a fantasy world. They don't live in reality. They have built from their religions to their institutions. It's all a fantasy. It's all made up. And then, if you don't believe it, then they want to hurt you. So they hold a gun. And by the way, 
The Eurasians who practice Islam did the same thing. They did the same thing. They took an African spiritual system, what we today call Islam, Eurasians coming from the northern country, calcified pineal gland. They embraced this faith system that African people gave them, and then they converted you and threatened your life if you did not become what they told you to become. The Christians did the same thing. They're all the same. And let me tell you something else. Chinese did it too. The Asians did it too with Buddha, because Buddha is not a heavy-set, bald man sitting in the lotus position. That is not the original Buddha. The original Buddha was black with kinky hair. That's the bottom line. So I don't hold nobody. I got a problem with all of them because they're liars. <laughs> and when someone tells a perfect lie, the truth is unbelievable. That's right. That's we have to right. right this wrong, family, and we have to speak from a perspective that our young people can understand what we are saying to them and what their moral and spiritual obligation is to themselves first and then to the human family second. Because if you can't love yourself, you can't love nobody else. If you can't respect yourself, you can't respect nobody else. What you think is love, and what you think is respect is really fear, false evidence appearing real. But it's not authentic love. It's not authentic respect. It is a result of a, of a way of looking at something that does not jive on the frequency of ma'at, which is truth and justice, order and arrangement, respect and ethics. Balance, yes. Balance, absolute harmony. Yes. yes. All right. We have we have Mama Az on the line, Baba. She's got a question or a comment for us as you continue dropping those precious jewels. Mama Az, welcome to the line. Give thanks. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes, beloved. We hear you. Uh, Brother Kava, thank you. Thank us. Thank us. Thank us. Thank us. Uh, my brother, you are really dropping some magnificent uh, jewels in, in, in down to the bone jewels. I'll make this quick as possible, but it's a lot here that you have confirmed a lot. Uh, first of all, um, before I get into everything that I made a note to ask you, how, where, what's your perspective on Black Lives Matter? Because you'd be honking. You were honking. So, so tell me where you, uh, where, your opinion of Black Lives Matter, just quickly as you, you know. Thank you, my brother. You are awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank us. Thank us. Okay, go ahead. My sister. May I yes, say? Yes, sir. I'm going to tell you what Richard Pryor said a couple of decades ago. I support anybody black doing anything for black people. I, I stay away from personalities. I stay away from emotion. 
-hmm. What I'm observing with the Black Lives Matter movement that was born out of Mike Brown, no matter who started it, how they started it, why they started it, something is starting in America right now. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you something else about Black Lives Matter, but let me take you back. And, sister, I think since they call you mama, you might remember the civil rights movement. Yes, sir. I'm 68 on July uh, 1st. Oh, okay. All right, so I'm 67, so we're real close to each other. We experienced it, okay? Uh, I was two years old when Emmett Till happened. I marched with Dr. King in Boston back in the 60s. And so what I know is this. When Martin Luther King was assassinated, 80% of black folk were against him. I know when Malcolm X was assassinated, 80% of black America didn't understand them. They loved them and respected them, but they didn't understand them. One of the things that we have to grow out of is our immature way of looking at situations. Mm. I don't get caught up in the messenger. I'm attracted to the message. Mm. And I think that we have to look at the, you know, we're getting too personal with the Black Lives Matter movement. We're getting too personal in the people who are in it, what their sexual orientation is. I don't care about that. I'm looking for the total emancipation and liberation of our people. I will work with anybody that is going to get to that point. I don't get involved in the personal. What I do know, as I have walked just by driving, every time you heard me honking, there was groups of people on corners here in New York City on Broadway with signs, with their fists up, like we had with the Black Panther Party and Stokely Carmichael. Mm. And it was 100% white. (laughs) (laughs) Family, we have to just open. You know, I understand our our emotional concern. White folk ain't taking our movement. They could never take our movement. Our movement is unique to black people. What we have done is what Malcolm X told them to do. Remember in the story, Malcolm X tells a story about a young lady when he was speaking on a college campus. A young lady came up to him and said, you know, Mr. X, I I think I'm a good white person. I don't feel that way towards black people. Uh, what? Please tell me, what can I do? What can I do to nothing. help you do what you do? And that's what he said. Nothing. He looked at it and said, nothing. <laughs> However... Years later, in in reflecting that story, Malcolm said something else. Malcolm said that if he could go back to that young lady, what he would tell her to do is to go into her neighborhood and talk to white people. Because it's white people's job to talk to white people. Not black people's job to talk to white people. It's white people's job because white people got the problem. Black folk ain't got this problem. Plus, most white people don't want to hear from black people. And I know because I've worked on projects. There was one time I did a a, um, presentation I co-presented with a woman of European descent who had the same job in her educational district that I had in mind, director of cultural education. That's what she did in Rochester, New York, and she and I co-presented in a staff development session of principals and teachers. 
Well, let me tell you, when I did my presentation, I did it first. I was scheduled for the morning. I did my presentation, and them Europeans had a heart attack with me. Hmm. They had everything to say about this and about that and about this and about that, and I was listening to them, and okay, 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 okay. They couldn't handle me. Then we went to lunch. And in the afternoon session, the European-American woman gave her presentation. Let me tell you, she was on fire. She said things to them that I didn't say. (laughs) She really incriminated white people. And they sat there with crickets. Hmm. White folk don't listen to black people. Not just that. I don't want to talk to white people. I want to talk to our people. So I don't mind not talking to them. I'm not trying to talk to them. They need to talk to themselves. So what you see happening in the street is once and for all, white folk are looking inside and say, you know something? I'm really screwed up. And my people really screwed up this country. And if we are going to live in the future, we better change our ways. Because family... You know, every generation has gotten bolder. And every generation has offered this country the opportunity to change their ways. And they haven't done it. And each time it gets a little bit bolder. Because, you know, last time I heard NWA, I'm not going to use the curse word, but NWA had a song on one of their albums that said, F the police. Yes, they did. Okay. So that this next generation coming through, they're not going to be marching. They're not going to be singing. They're going to be swinging. So my advice to Europeans, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. That's right. And so to that extent, I support Black Lives Matter because they are doing something. And for any of us who have a problem with Black Lives Matter and think they shouldn't be doing it, may I ask you, please, what are you doing? 